Welcome to the Multitask. I am John Moore. And I'm Fadi Haddad. So did you get your vaccine yet? Yeah, no, I'm first in line, though, if it comes down to it. I think I'm low on the priority, but um, I'm not opposed to that. Well, you know, so for those of you who don't know, the uh, FDA approved the vaccine, but it was not with it without last minute drama. Yeah. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I think it was yesterday, I'm sitting here chilling. I get a text from Fadi. And what did that text tell me? What did that what did you tell me in that text, bro? Well, it was a tweet of, of, of reporting that Mark Meadows had pressured the FDA chief to um, approve it, regardless of what the actual chief wanted to do. I think it was just like this was this was inevitable it was coming and he just wanted to do it i think on specifically that day he just he was pressuring the fda chief to move forward right and, and you know the thing is is when that story broke and i think uh most people would agree it was it was just unnecessary bs because mm-hmm. i think we were all moving towards accepting and understanding that this is going to be the the vaccine that we'll be using and for them to put pressure on it, for people who were necessarily not trusting it, that gives reason to believe, people reason to believe that it, it might not have been fully vetted. Even though they were, we all knew it was going to happen, just that little nudge and that public um, story that, that there was pressure from the White House on the FDA, that, that was potentially very damaging. Yeah, there was a big, that's the first thing I thought of when I read the thing was, um, there's a there was a big anti-vax movement in this country prior to COVID. This is something that the the public health officials were working on prior and fighting prior to COVID. And because Trump politicized the vaccine almost immediately, because people were nicknaming it, people on the right specifically were nicknaming it the Trump vaccine. And and look, one thing I know for sure, regardless of what the polls say, people don't trust politicians. And so when you start linking politicians to vaccines you start to find the distrust in the vaccines. There's people who believe in vaccines wholeheartedly like myself that are saying, I'm hesitant here, if, especially if Trump won the election to say, I don't know what this looks like. They're, they're running it down the, the pipe too fast. Some of it's just science, right? We already have a, the SARS COVID vaccine, the, like the chemical breakdown of it, I was reading about it, that already exists for the SARS uh, um, virus. You know what I mean? So. The reason it's so fast is because part of it is we already have a foundation that's similar and they're working off it to adjust it. But um, to to claim that this is the fastest vaccine ever and then to, to force people to approve it, it just doesn't look good and it's optics. And you're fighting anti-vax movement already. And so this, this is not going to help at all. What was amazing, they had a press, the FDA had a press conference yeah. to um, talk about today. And um, Stephen Hahn, the head of the FDA, uh, was speaking, and the best part about it is they never mentioned Trump once. Yeah. And I, part of me wonders if they just freelance with the press conference, if they know that this administration is coming to the end, and we're just going to do what we want, and we're going to do it how it needs to be done, as opposed to how Trump wants it. Because uh, you and I both know that Trump probably wanted to be on that stage with the FDA as they were talking about it, but it was a very scientific, very reassuring press conference and it was because it was the experts it was professionals talking very um academically technically but in in, in a way that was very understandable to the layman and i don't know did you see the press conference i didn't see the press conference but i you talked about it we tweeted about it a little bit and that's why trump i think went ahead and released his own kind of press conference saying this is historic news i want to say something and i want to be very direct with this trump gets zero credit for this vaccine 
just because you're happen to be president when this vaccine was developed means absolutely nothing to me. When the batter is in the batter box, the manager doesn't get credit for the home run that the batter hit, regardless of if he's coach of the team or not. Um, Trump's going to try to take credit for it. Everybody on the right is going to try to take credit for it. Um, but he gets zero credit for this. And that's why he's probably just want, he, he wants to be at those press conferences because he wants the image of the vaccine to be with him. And, you know, and one thing, quite frankly, it was a global effort by, driven by scientists. And I read today that uh, Pfizer got a significant portion of its funding from Germany. So the reality is, is that Trump's running around trying to take a victory lap. But and, and you don't see Merkel running around trying to, to claim all sorts of credit. But the, the funding for it now, evidently, remember when, when it first came out, we found out we had first heard that Pfizer wasn't part of Operation Warp Speed, but it yeah. kind of clarified that they were, but I guess they didn't get funding. Is that what it was? Something where they they're, were actually part, part of, of Warp it, but... Speed, but all their, their all their work was done outside of the Warp Speed parameters. So, right. Look, these these guys know what they're doing. This is what these companies do. Trump didn't green light a vaccine. He didn't ask anybody to make a vaccine. This is what these companies do. The public health officials, not only in this country but across the globe, this is what they do. So. As far as I'm concerned, like he gets no credit for it, regardless of what they say. By the way, I'm not sure if you saw it before we started recording today. Um, you know who just joined Twitter? And said one tweet? No, I don't. We believe Fauci. He's he's under uh-huh. Fauci and he said this is my first tweet, but he's not verified. But literally it was his first tweet, and I think what I want to the handle is it was Fauci. Fauci was no, the someone hand. must have grabbed it a long time ago. The, the, Unless he grabbed it. But so I I immediately I immediately tweeted verify this man because it could to your point it could very well be a a hoax. But I would think if someone had Fauci, they probably would have used it earlier. Yeah, unless he had it and he just did it wasn't on Twitter and he was just having it. Well, I always t- I always tell people, especially some of my clients, that they should definitely park their names. Yeah. So, but and the question is, if it is really, I guarantee you, if it is really Fauci, what do you think is the over under and how long it'll take him to get verified? <laughs> A day or two, <laughs> which will drive Trump into Section Two Thirty people crazy. Oh, it, it was, it was. I, I saw it, and I was, I was thinking, wow, this, this is just, this, this, this is funny. So I'm checking right now to see if he is actually. Uh, verified yet um uh we'll, we'll have to see but you know speaking of fauci he was a finalist uh for mm-hmm. uh time magazine's person of the year but uh we actually had a duo win it this year who won it this year um i think the next president of the united states the next uh, vice president of the united states kamala harris and joe biden um yeah there was a lot of actual controversy i don't know if you i, I never talked to you about this but the people were upset that it should have been the frontline workers and fauci and nurses and doctors and stuff which i tend to agree with 100 percent. but from what i read every single president-elect gets the time person of the year so it was kind of like a default decision for them so um yeah i'm, I'm good with it well oh and just so you know it looks like it was fake oh it's been del- it's been deleted already but it, that thing jumped up in numbers. But going back to what I'm you're sure. saying, um, I think the problem with the time person of the year is that you can really ever never really name it person of the year because there's so many arguments. And you and I both know that had it been the frontline workers, there would have been a whole, well, what about the historic nature of this ticket? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and what time does now is they actually uh, have like multiple ca- categories 
uh, I think they gave LeBron uh, athlete of the year or, um, and then they gave, um, they, they gave Fauci and the, and the frontline workers some classification, I would say caretakers or some, something that would talk about the craziness. But, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed and I mentioned it to you is in previous years, and you talked about how it's the president-elect. This year was the president-elect plus the vice president-elect. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that my mom has noticed is that Biden is doing a very good job. I'd probably say more so than any other president-elect, and we'll see how it goes into the presidency. He's making this a partnership. He, I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I thought that he and Obama were, were, were really good partners, and time told us over eight years they were really tight. But at least in the, in this... A phase between now and the transition phase, he is doing a lot to really give her a platform. She speaks at every event in which they're, you know, introducing members, uh, potential members of the cabinet. Uh, are, are you noticing that, or what? what, what yeah, absolutely. Saying? Something I think he's doing on purpose for for a few reasons. One is, is she is historic, right? She's not only the first woman, but the first woman of color and the first. I know there's controversy about the first person of color, but she's definitely um, an historic thing. And he, I think that's just good for him to get out there and, and to showcase. The second thing is, as we all know, there's rumors or innuendo that he's not running in four years. So for him to begin grooming her, quote unquote, um, because remember, he's in a unique position to be, he was the vice president, right? So he knows what that's like. And he also knows now he's going through the process of being president. So he's grooming her, I think for the next four years because he might not run. And I think she, he's just trying to get, she know he knows that she's the star of the ticket in a lot of ways, right? People voted for Joe Biden. Let's be clear about that. But there's a lot of people who voted for, for Kamala Harris and they showed up to the ballot um, to vote for Kamala Harris. So he knows that that that's kind of his ace in the hole. And so I think why not just use her any chance you get and take the next four years to kind of groom her and set her up if you're not going to run again. Right. And you know, it's, it, it is, it's a new day. Um, Mm -hmm. I've always thought, um, and I'm not sure if you've ever dealt with like not-for-profits, but you know, in some places, um, what most people run for now in an organization, now it might be, it's definitely different than the presidency, but in a lot of organizations, what people oftentimes fight to run for is a position called first vice president or vice president. Again, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking organizations, because it's oftentimes believed that that person will now be the next president of a particular organization or chairperson. Um, here we're talking partisan politics. So, you know, it'd be great to be, you know, that automatically the vice president gets elevated to the presidency. Um, but at least within their realm, I mean, it's, it's almost like that. Um, and I kind of said this back when it looked like Biden was emerging. I said, realistically, the fight should be for that vice presidency because um, given Biden's age and a number of other factors, I did think uh, in this case it's Kamala, but I did think whoever he chose would be less of a vice president, but more of a president in waiting. Yeah, I totally agree with that 100%, which is why I think time, I think time knows that too. Obviously I thought they chose her as well because of her historic nature and just what she's accomplished um, just by being the vice president elect. And I think they also know that, um, come four years, she might be on the cover herself. So I, I think it's twofold here. Right. And what the best part about that, well, there's many best parts about it, but the best part about it, it was just one more loss for the orange, uh, or as I love to call them, toupee fiasco. Yeah. Uh, it was it was another defeat. Uh, you know, Trump, I think he was a finalist. Uh, but, um, yeah, and one I, of the four, yeah. And, and, but, you know, he hasn't said anything about it. 
but uh, that's because he's been taking L's ever since election day. Um, he 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 lost that, and then he proceeded to get shut down by the Supreme Court. Nine nothing, yeah, blowout, yeah. Um, you know, Trump famously said, "We're gonna win so much that you're gonna get tired of winning." I'm not tired of this at all. It's very fun to wake up every single morning with another Trump loss on my book. Um, look, I've, I've, a lot of people were saying, trust the courts, trust the courts, trust the courts. They haven't let us down yet. And it, it gives me some faith in our democracy that, that they can't just steal this under from under us. But at the same time, they're pushing this to the point where when 100, uh, 100 Republicans, GOP members sign up to, to in support of it, we're, we're in just scary times. I, I don't want to lose the fact that this is unprecedented. And it's, and it's, um, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's they're trying to steal the country. It's like a coup in, in a lot of ways. So I don't want to lose that, but it's also fun to just watch, keep taking L's. And then they keep, they keep thinking of the new hope, right? First it was like the GOP in Philadelphia was going to save them. That didn't work. The same thing with Michigan. Then it was going to be the Nevada one. And then, Oh, all right. The Supreme court's going to save us. And, not a single vote, you know, and so I'm, I'm happy. I like it. I keep taking out as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, it was actually up to 126, including uh, the oh, the wow. minority leader, minority leader, and um, I want to say his name was Bill Pascarell, a, a congressman from New Jersey, was actually making a very good argument that realistically the Democrats should not seat, or or, or the party in power, or, or the Congress itself should not seat those who signed the letter yeah. um, strictly because it's working against the country. Um, there are some people who academically went in and said, you know, that's a very valid argument. There are other people said, you know, it's, it's, it, it would be a stretch to not seat these people. But what it does do is it really, you really have to look at where the Republican Party is. That's why I, I know that we're, you know, history says that the midterms are not going to be friendly to the Democrats, but I think that the Republicans have put themselves in such a box that some of the norms that they've broken, right, um, will then violate other norms that have traditionally worked to their advantage. I do think that there's a very good chance that Democrats can uh, retain their majority, pick up seats in the Senate, maybe even pick up seats in the House in the midterm. Um, again, we don't know the lay of the land yet. We don't know what's going on. But I just think that the Republican Party has just put itself in such a box that it's going to make it easier for the Democrats to do, or, or, or should I say, it will, I won't be surprised if the Democrats go against the grain in the midterm and have a successful midterm. Well, I think long-term, it's always bad for the GOP. They're always going to trend downwards until they change uh, what, until they change the soul of their party, obviously. Um, the thing I think about is that I, I would tend to agree with you, but I think the people, they lost it. The people are so far gone that this is what they want, right? It used to be like when a politician, remember the Dean scream and all that stuff. And um, that used to be political suicide. And now it's just like so common that I'm afraid that the people are going to keep voting for them regardless. It's become so partisan now that um, it's not about stealing other people. It's not about getting Republicans back or getting Democrats to flip over. I think it's just about getting people to the polls. And 
the polls will the polls say that there's more Democrats than Republicans, and that's going to continue to trend that way. So I think we we should stop focusing on trying to get Republicans back and stop trying to focus on what the Republican Party is, and just keep focusing on what we could do when we're in power to govern and to get people out to vote for us. Yeah, and I and I think one of the things is 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 you bring up a very good point about, and I was going to say they say seventy three percent of Republicans believe that this election was stolen. But it's not 73% of 50% of the electorate. You know, it's not like we're in a 50... First of all, we've always been more of a 30-30-30 country, right? 30% Democrat, 30%... Uh, let's say 33% Democrat, 33% Republican, 33% Independent. Obviously, that Republican number has gone down. So when you're talking about 73% of the Republican Party, you're not talking about, you know, seven three quarters of 50%. You're talking about a much smaller population. But, you know, one of the things that you'll see, and I'm not sure if you're noticing, um, the Republicans are going to make a run. We're in Illinois. Uh, Republicans are going to be making a run for the Senate seat. Right now, it's held by Tammy Duckworth uh, in 2022. And two people who I've heard um, would probably be the Republicans' choice. Um, it won't be the whack job like they had this Mark Curran that ran this year, but it would probably be either Adam Kinzinger or Rodney Davis. And neither one of them signed that letter. Neither, and, and, and Kinzinger has been very critical of, of the way Trump is managing it. So, um, But see, here's the thing that the Republicans run into and they've had for, had for years. Um, Kinzinger's problem is anything he does to make himself more appealing to moderate voters will undermine him in a Republican primary. So he's doing some things that if he can get to a general election might work to his benefit. But I will tell you, the things that he has to do to be appealing in a general election may undermine any chance he has in a, in a primary. Yeah, the, 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 the thing of the long term damage here is that Republicans are pushing their base so far right that it's going to be hard to push some of this back. Eventually, Republicans are going to fall into the idea that people should have health care and that we should save Medicare and we should do all that stuff. But right now, like I think um, Rush, I think it was Rush Limbaugh who was saying we should just secede. Like you guys are, you've already been through this. Right? You already saw what happened last time. And I keep thinking about the Confederate flag. Actually, like they're still holding on to the Confederate flag so much that I wonder how long they're going to be holding on to this Trump lost or got stole, stole, they stole the election from Trump. I wonder if in a hundred years, we're going to be actually talking about how Trump was rigged and he lost the election because we stole it from him. I, I wonder how much damage is actually being done long-term. I, I'm not sure if you saw it. Um, Steve Smith, Republic, Repu former Republican consultant has reached out to AOC on Twitter. Have, yeah. you, have you seen that? Yeah, it's just the weirdest love kid action in the world. You know, I, I, I'm not sure how to feel about it on two levels. In a way, I agree with him. Um, and he is modeling the behavior. I want to see the never Trump Republicans model because I'm, a, I'm fearful that now that Trump's not out, that a lot of them will go back and support that movement. Um, so I, I, I applaud him for doing that. But one of the things, and, and think about it, Steve Smith was the person who added Sarah Palin to John McCain's ticket. So what, you know, Stuart Stevens, who is a Republican consultant, has kind of disowned his previous actions. But, you know, a lot of these never Trump Republicans that we really like on TV, they're part of the reason why we have Trump. If, if, if they weren't, you know, embracing the Southern strategy, if they weren't going ahead and putting Sarah Palin on tickets, Donald Trump wouldn't be in the White House today. And so it's kind of tough. I, I don't know how, I, you know, I feel I want to like them. And, and, and it's funny because in this AOC thing, he, he made some good points. He said, you know, 
you know, we shouldn't be mocking waitresses in Congress. We should, you know, I, you know, you and I both know I have some issues with AOC, but I do think that the attack of her, the way they attack her from the right is BS. Uh, mine's more internal, you know, uh, progressive versus moderate, even though I'm probably more progressive than most progressives, I'd probably come off more as a moderate. You know, some of my issues are there, but, um, you know, he made some good points. I'm not sure if she'll take debate, you know, because it might be, you know, a liability for her to take debate because she goes so hard against people who compromise and everything else. You know, uh, how do you think it's going to turn out? Do you think she's going to take debate or do you think she's going to just let them keep trying to woo her? I think she, I think she'll probably throw off a couple of tweets, but I don't think it's gonna go past that. Um, she's very, but she also knows like that she's smarter than a lot of those guys, so she could handle them. And so she's I feel like she takes on a lot of fights because she wins a lot of fights. If that makes sense, but um, but I totally agree. Right, we saw the the Lincoln Project guys and the Midas Touch guys were um, very very anti, and not only Trump. Right, they went after uh, they're going after the Georgia seats, and they went after Ted Cruz in 2018 and stuff like that. So, um, I, I wonder if the Republican Party will eventually become something like the Tea Party, and and the more center right Republicans will create kind of create their own party. But I, I read an interesting article. I don't know if you saw that that the Lincoln Project and the Midas Touch ads that were so popular digitally didn't actually sway voters as much as we thought they were. So. I wonder. If yeah, but I agree. And some and someone said one of the problems with the uh, with the Lincoln Project was it was very masculine and it didn't really appeal to true, to, yeah. to 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 women. But you know, I, I hear. I think here's the thing. Um, I I I think it's too. I think too often we run too hot and too cold. Yeah. I do think that we shouldn't give the Lincoln Project too much credit, but I also don't think that we should underestimate their impact. I do think, you know, in that viral space, you know, it might not have been too effective with a lot of voters, but if that can knock off some insiders, if that can knock off, you know, it might undermine, let's just say that you had pundit A or moderate Republican B who was impacted by it. And that person impacts, you know, impacts a lot of people. So I don't necessarily want to completely disregard what type of impact they, they may have had, but you know, it, it's crazy, but we want to switch subjects uh, earlier this week was, I'm not sure if it's this week or the week before there was a police shooting in Columbus, a gentleman by the name of Casey Godson uh, or Goodson was shot. Uh, his family says he was carrying some subway sandwiches. The police said he had a gun, but um, his family said, you know, he didn't have a gun, but even, but he was licensed to carry a gun. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've always said about the second amendment is, where is the NRA on this? If he if he did in fact have a gun, the NRA should still be all over it because the mere fact of having a, a gun does not mean that you should be shot. So one, there's a question as to whether or not he even had a gun. But two, unless he used a gun in a threatening manner, just having a gun does not justify a shooting. Yeah, well, I think the police came out and said already that the, the person um, that they shot was not the intended person. So whether he had a gun or not, it doesn't matter. They weren't looking for him and he was still the victim of the thing or victim of the, of the, of the shooting. Um, the NRA doesn't really care about, I think anybody that's not white. Uh, we saw with Philando Castile who was licensed to carry illegally and everything was good. The paperwork was strong. They didn't really care. Right. So I'm not too concerned about them, but this is another incident where all, all accounts of, of, of what happened was he was, walking into his front door and the key was still in the lock if i'm not mistaken i was reading there's obviously police are going to say something that uh might not be true but um 
his key was in the lock. He was opening to walk into his door. So my question becomes for the Blue Lives Matter people is, you you say that cops can't de-escalate every situation, but what's escalated in this situation? He has his back towards back toward turn towards you. He's walking into his home. Why can't you let him walk into his home and then go get him after? Ring the doorbell and ask him to come outside, right? Um, but again, we, this is another case where a, a man died that shouldn't have died, and he's a victim of um, of 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 we're having this conversation of defund the police and what we should do to move forward and. And we can't even get a space to fix these problems without something happening. Now, what do you think? Um, you know, it's gotten some attention. Mm-hmm. It's it's national news, not you know, not in the A block, normally the B, late B, early C block. Um, it's getting some pickup, um, but it's I would say from a national standpoint, it's very really muted. Um, mm-hmm. What do you attribute? What do you attribute that to? Is it there's that, no video? Is it the act- there's no video video, so it can't go viral as much as uh, a news clip could go viral so unfortunately there's no there's no video so i don't think it's really catching on i see a lot of it of um um black lives matter and hashtags and stuff like that but again my my timeline is curated for when i follow a lot of the black lives matter people and i follow a lot of of black and, and people of color so um my timeline had it but i wonder if if you're not into that as much um if you even know about it, really. Right, right. But, you know, and it brings up the whole issue of policing and uh, something very interesting happened this week in Minneapolis. And that is the Minneapolis City Council voted, I think, to strip about $8 million out mm-hmm. of the police budget, uh, but but to keep the police staffing levels the same. Um, the, and, you know, the Tr- Chicago Tribune wrote about it in a manner in which they used the phrase defund the police. Um, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune, a hometown paper, uh, wrote about it, and they didn't use the phrase at all. And don't forget, um, in the aftermath of the George Floyd, um, whole, the incident around George Floyd, a lot of uh, Minneapolis City Council members vowed to defund the police, yeah. and a lot of, and you know, there's a lot of talk that that failed. So it's, you know, what are what are your thoughts on on how that thing played out in, in Minnesota? Well, when you showed me the contrast of the two articles, it was interesting because, you know, what I thought of to be honest, John, was like. Why, why is this, why is budgeting news? Like I get it, the government spends our money and so we should pay attention. But like when schools get cut, it's sometimes a story or, or you know, when we take away money from the streets and sanitation, it's not really a story. Like this, all cities try to figure out their local budgets and this is just the thing, right? Like we're going to take $8 million from here and put it here. You know, obviously the defend the police thing has obviously escalated it and it's made it to national news stories. But I wonder if just, cities start doing it without even mentioning it. They just start allocating funds that were intended to go there. And we saw a big fight with, with Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago when, when all the aldermen wanted her to cut the budget or, cut, or get rid of cops from the CPS school system and stuff like that. And I wonder if, if cities can start doing this and is reallocating funds without mentioning it and see if anything actually happens. Well, and, it's, and to me, it's a test for the activists, right? It's yeah. you got what you wanted. You wanted money. Well, some of you got what you wanted. Don't forget, I still, uh, I still say that there are abolitionists out there who are saying, "Nah, shut it all down." Yeah, yeah. But, for, but, but, but don't, but don't forget, some of the people who are coming hard, 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 hard for the fund the police. Are you happy? Yeah. Because eight million dollars got moved, but, but, the, but the staffing level stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, but it also shows the complexities of, um, the why you can't use a slogan to drive policy yeah 
you know, um, I don't feel, I don't know, when you saw $8 million shifted, but staffing level stayed the same, um, if you had not, if we had not just gone through a defund the police argument, would you have immediately said to yourself that you funded the police or would yeah. you just say they shifted priorities? Yeah, exactly. You or know? maybe the, the one contract for that one a baton didn't come in. You know, a lot of like, I learned about this a lot in Ferguson where the, you know, the police were super militarized was they have these budgets for tanks and armed vehicles and, and special equipment that they don't actually need for just police work, right? So I wonder if like, you could just stop buying these things for your local government from the army and um, you can save a lot of money just by reallocating funds. So I, I do tend to agree with you. I just wonder if this wasn't a national conversation, if anybody would actually care that $8 million wasn't given to the police and it was just reallocated. I don't think anybody would pay attention. It just just be a budget thing. Right, and I do think, you know, going back, I think those city council members in uh, Minneapolis learned a very, you know, interesting lesson. You know, a lot of them were out there embracing the fund police and, uh, the, you know, a couple of months into their whole effort to defund the police, they started backtracking, hemming and hawing. Um, and, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, I think they made a very wise decision to put money into crime prevention and to do some things that shift some of the money away. But, you know, they went out there, tried to make the activists happy. And they, you know, you know, bought into language, they bought into a model, but didn't necessarily buy into policy. Yeah, they, and, backed, them, they backed themselves in a corner where they have to do it now or else right. nothing's going to work. It's either that right. or nothing. Yeah. Right. So, you know, one of the things that that ties into is uh, incarcerated people and more importantly, the death penalty. Uh, this last week, uh, two uh, federal prisoners were, were, were murdered or I will say murdered. I'm not a big the death penalty to me is horrible. Um, and I do think that there's some some efforts here. And, you know, you had Brandon Bernard and Alfred Bourgeois. I think it's Bourgeois. Uh, they were the um, ninth and tenth people executed since the Justice Department resumed federal ex executions in May. And, um, you know, in both cases, the, the first guy, Brandon, uh, he didn't even kill anybody. He yeah. was an accomplice. Uh, Allegedly. Alleged, an alleged accomplice. And then I think the second, Alfred uh, Bourget, uh, again, Bourgeois, uh, he, he, they, didn't he have like diminished mental capacity? Uh, he, you know, meaning, he, you know, he's not, you know, fully present. So it, it raised some terms, but you know what it is, it's, it's also Trump and Barr, and Barr mm -hmm. just trying to kill people in, in the federal, in the federal death row system. Yeah, and to tell people, it's very rare that people get executed during a lame duck session because it gives the, the one, you don't want the, like, from what I read, you don't want the numbers on your record. And the other thing is you give the, you give the chance to the next guy to, to pardon them or, or, or stay the execution if they choose. So it's very rare that this happens, but they're push, they seem to be pushing it a lot. I know Brandon was in the news a lot more than the second gentleman um, because because from what I read, he didn't do anything. He, he was in the car when they went to do something and he didn't know that they were going to do it. And the police and the court records show that he had no idea. But a lot of people don't know these laws that if you're in the car, when something happens on the way there, on the way back, you, you, you could get, you could get, um, you could get caught up in the charges. So first of all, if he didn't kill anybody, I'm not sure why the death penalty was even a thing. Second of all, I don't know why the death penalty is a thing anyway. Right? right. I remember in, when I was little, Timothy McVeigh was like, 
people were having um, social conversations about the ethics of it. And I remember writing papers about it. And I remember being anti-death penalty back then because it just didn't seem like it solved anything. But at the same time, I can't speak for the family members of people who have lost people who who might want to see the death penalty. I personally don't believe in it. I personally believe if you're going to do that, then put me in the room with them, you know, um, and let me take care of it. But I think we have to move away from the death penalty. And I think there's not a lot of death penalty cases anymore. And hopefully that, that the trend continues. Well, and, you know, I think to your point, you know, one, is it fair? Um, two, you know, realistically, we, we have the death penalty. We've had the death penalty for years. And it, to me, it has not stopped people from killing one another. Right. I mean, think about it. In, in, in a lot of street crime, especially when you think about gang violence, that person is already risking their life because in many cases, it's a shootout. Yeah. Um, you and I both, you know, we're living in, living in the Chicago area, you in the city, me in the suburbs. Uh, it's gang violence. Yeah. And realistically, if, if I were to go ahead and shoot somebody, first and foremost, it's in the act of shooting that person, I might get shot. And then secondly, there's a whole retribution thing. So the reality is, is when those are the stakes, potentially dying in prison, I don't think that necessarily scares people away from murder, right? Um, secondly, um, you know, it's, do we need to sink, sink, sink down to their level? You know, um, does a person go away, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not making any judgments, but right now is what happens is Brandon's going to be a, a martyr, a folk hero. Um, if if it was really necessary to imprison him, um, he could have just rotted, rotted away in jail, a lifetime sentence, it, kind of anonymously, right? Yeah. So you, you elevate the folks. And then um, the other piece that you have there is you have a situation where in almost all death penalty cases because of how much time they go through appeals and other hearings, uh, I'm told it's much more expensive to execute someone than just let them serve the rest of their life in prison. You know, yeah, uh, and I think there's a, there's a fourth factor which gets talked about, but I don't think it's talked about a lot. What if you just happen, I'm sure along the history, you've executed people who were just innocent, right? Before DNA evidence, before, um, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of of, of times in, during the civil rights era and stuff like that where people were executed that were just super innocent. So if you just get rid of it and save one innocent life, I think it's just worth it. Like if you're going to take a chance of executing somebody who might have not done anything, even in Brandon's case where he didn't do anything, but I'm speaking more like if you just got the wrong guy, if you just happen to convict the wrong guy or wrong person, and you're executing them. I mean, we've seen people who have been in jail for 40 years get freed because of new evidence or false uh, testimony. So I wonder if we just, just get rid of it, save money and to um, you know, not kill people. It, does, it just doesn't help. I don't think it helps. But again, I can't speak for if somebody something were to happen to one of my family members. I, I, might, I might feel different. But it goes back to what we've been talking about with the fund of police. Um, you know, there's uh, police abolitionists and there's also prison abolitionists. Um, and just like with police abolitionists, I don't necessarily uh, agree with prison abolitionists. But how? But just like with police abolitionists, prison abolitionists have a lot of solutions uh, to lower the number of people who are incarcerated. Um, and I think we have to listen to them. I mean, there's too many people in prison. Um, there's probably, you know, there's definitely too many people on death row. And if you even just say the people who are serving life sentences, there's probably too many people serving life sentences. Um, if, you know, to our point, 
um, death penalty or no death penalty, I have serious concerns with someone in Brandon's position, uh, even serving life in prison. He was he, he was literally riding along, and I do think that that speaks to one of the things that I, I one of the problems I have an issue with is I understand the need to hold people accountable, especially when lives are lost. But I'm also kind of I I think it's wrong that if someone dies during the commission of a crime uh, that the people who committed the crime, even if there was no intent to kill, especially if they didn't, if they were, you know, they're, they're oftentimes charged with murder. So we could have a situation where you and I could rob a store, the police can come and shoot at us and hit uh, just a store owner. And the reality is, is that we would be charged with murder. Um, even though we didn't shoot or anything. So I, 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 I think that uh, their ability to charge people with murder when they were, yes, their act started it, but, you know, what if we find that the police were, you know, who were wilding out, you know, the, the shot was bad or what have you. I do think that we really have to reconsider how we punish people. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, programs that, uh, you know, allow people to have alternatives to locking people up. I've also felt too that um, I don't, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of the death sentence. I'm not a big fan of life terms, but or life sentences. But I always almost felt that we should always have a prison for people that's separate from the life sentence or the people that are going to be on death row for people who are going to get out and work on rehabilitation. Because you know what? Rehabilitating a prisoner, um, that's not a best necessarily a benefit just to them. That's a benefit to you and I, because if that prisoner is going to get out, you used to have a store. Uh, you don't want that prisoner to just come in and oh, his only option be robbing your store. You want that prisoner to be a a contributing member of the community. And too often we have a prison system right now that that is so geared on punishment that they create a situation where the recidivism rate could be very high because they become worse criminals, they get no skills, they get out and they turn right back around and they commit crime in their back. But those guys who come to my community, your community, I want them to be able to contribute. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's just too many factors here, right? The entire system just doesn't work and it's racist, frankly. Um, look, they, they suffer inside. Inside conditions aren't even like let's just talk about being inside, right? The food is horrible. That sometimes there's no, uh, there's like a lot of like just diseases and a lot of rampant stuff like that because it's unsanitary. Um, there's also situations where like, you have pregnant mothers and there's a women's side of it too, right? We're talking about a lot about guys here, but there's a women's side of it here. I bet you there's a massive population of people who are imprisoned who probably shouldn't be there. So we could start with like nonviolence first and we could start with like stuff like that. And those are, when they leave, we have to work on getting them back to functioning in society. It's hard, right? When we ask them to leave and there's a lot of people who won't hire felons, you can't, there's states that won't let you vote. There's states where you can't have like social security or, or um, government benefits. So it's like, or health insurance, whatever it is, right? It's like this idea that, you you let's say you do a crime and you do two years in life and you come back out and your whole life is affected for it you're you're really serving a life sentence on the outset too because you're struggling so much so the entire system needs to change it's so big that i, I can't imagine it being overnight but 
entire system needs overhauling. Something where the abolitionists might help out the most. Right. But, but that's, you know, and this is the last thing I'll say about abolitionists today. Um, I think the thing that's tough, the one thing that's tough for me is that if you've ever talked to them, they don't want to make the system better. They want to tear it down. I know, but they might have good ideas. <laughs> they have good ideas, right? And, and, but the thing is, is like you almost want to bring them to like, you almost want to say, okay, look, I know you want to blow up the system, but could you at least sit down with this ward and tell them what he can be doing differently? Yeah, yeah. Could you at least sit down with this police chief and tell them what he can be doing differently? But they don't They don't want to deal with them at all. They just want to blow the whole system up, right? You, I you want know? to get in the car with them and then exit off a little early. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, one of the things that is uh, impacting prisons too is COVID, and yeah. I'm I'm making a hard pivot to um, um, to one of the things that happened today or this weekend was uh, during a basketball game, Florida versus Florida State, big rivalry. Um, a player from Florida named Keontae Johnson collapsed during the game, and uh, we come to find out that he had actually, uh, as as with many of his teammates, had suffered from COVID earlier in the year. Yeah, from what I read, he he tested positive for COVID in the summer, and then um, everything was cleared, and they were returned to play. But something that we saw early with the college football stuff was a lot of these players are getting their side effects, right? And and there's there was a player in Michigan, football player, who I think had an enlarged heart, and we see that with a lot of people actually. There's, there's like there was like 13 percent of people or athletes who had enlarged hearts after having COVID. Um, I'm not saying this was the situation here. Obviously, um, we're still finding out what happened to the the, the basketball player. Uh, Keontae, I think it's Keontae, right? Um, yeah. He, uh, but so I don't want to speak over speak and say what happened to him, but we just don't know the long lasting effects of some COVID cases. It hits a lot of people differently, right? We saw it with Freddie Freeman and the Atlanta Braves, who said this hit me hard, and he was dealing it for, dealing with it for months. We just saw in the Green Bay Packers running back AJ. AJ Dillon, who said he was on, he got COVID five weeks ago and he still hasn't been back on the field because he's been on the COVID list for five weeks. So, and he, he's, he talks about it. It's hitting people differently. And, and some cases are very, very mild and asymptomatic, but there's a lot of cases that um, might lead to something like what happened in Florida. And I think that there's a, I think there's a guy that plays for the Vikings that also had to miss this season because he's still dealing with the effects. And um, I believe so. And you talked about that whole enlarged heart issue. Don't forget, a lot of athletes, especially the taller, bigger athletes, they deal with that enlarged heart problem even pre-COVID. Yeah. And so, so the reality is, is that the, you know, the issue is that they're even more at risk now due to COVID. Uh, we don't know if that's the case. We don't know right. if that's what happened today. But the reality is, is that you can't discount it. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we keep saying, you know, and that's why, remember we talked a few weeks ago and I said, you know, I really do wonder uh, because of COVID and we don't know how it's impacting athletes and Keontae, you know, passed out today. I wonder if this will impact someone like Trevor Lawrence's trade, yeah. uh, draft stock because they're going to know he had COVID. And if there's, and if they're, if they're showing that having COVID is going to potentially put you at risk for, I forget the the name of the enlarged heart. Myocarditis or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I wonder how it will impact athletes. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about being healthy. It's mm -hmm. about recovering. Um, I think that we just have to, you know, it, it it's, again, so frustrating. Here it is, December, you know, we, we've got a vaccine on the way. Um, you know, hopefully things are going to start getting better. But it, it just, it goes to show that 
we just have to be smart. Um, I think that there's so much out there. I really think that what they should have done, and I know this is probably tough for athletes who especially are looking at drafts. I think that realistically, and this would have decimated college sports, but it might help in the long run. I think realistically, if you had an athlete that tested positive for COVID, just put them out for the entire season and don't mess with their eligibility or what have you, and let them give them a full time to recover, study them, you know, because maybe they're, you know, I would think, you know, we have great medicine, great doctors, great medical people. Um, I'd feel much better if they were actually studying these guys and looking at them and giving them time to really, truly, fully recover and put them in a much better position because, you know what, um, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, yeah, Kante Johnson, it may, it may impact your ability in the draft, but what's the point if you're going to get sicker and, and collapse and have either lose your life or potentially at least lose your career, and especially if we find that with time and treatment, you could fully recover. But I think they're sending these guys back into the court, back on the field without really truly knowing the long-term effects. I don't think they've had enough time to study it. Well, not only that, but the players want to go back because this is their lives too, right? Trevor Lawrence is just looking at changing his family's life, his generations from now's family's life with a big contract in the NFL. So he wants to play because that's his dream and that's his goal, right? And he doesn't want anything to stop that. I wonder. I, I don't think it will follow Trevor Lawrence as far as like I think he's going number one overall, um, but there's players. Remember, a lot of the college football college college players not a lot of them make it into to professional sports. So you might be a offensive lineman or a point guard and you might have these long lasting effects and it might affect your life long-term and you don't have no goals of going professional. So I think Trevor's going to be fine because he's going to get a big deal. But I wonder if it does follow players around like a scarlet letter where, you know, when, when, a, when a player had bad knees in college, teams just write them off and, and they don't want to draft them because of the bad knees. I just wonder if this is something that they're looking at, like, I wonder if this is something that's going to follow them on their resume. Yes. Well, I will say this. Um, I will wish uh, Trevor Lawrence a great recovery. I definitely wish, and I think both you and I definitely want to see Keontae uh, recover. But um, Trevor, uh, next week, will be playing for my favorite football team. I have two favorite football teams. My favorite football team is the University of Alabama and whoever's playing Notre Dame. And so next week, Notre Dame and Clemson are playing in the ACC championship. So uh, my, my, my advice to Trevor is rumble, young man, rumble. And on that note, it's, uh, this is John uh, signing off. And this is Fadi signing off. Thanks for joining us, guys. See you later.